Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started, and we're going to be in Acts chapter number 17 today. Acts chapter 17, glad to have everybody out. Well, you're finding your place. Let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll dive into our study here. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we thank you, Lord, for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for everyone who's gathered out today and for our time and fellowship already, Lord, and we thank you so much for your word, and we just ask your blessings on our service as we uh, dive into your word and uh, uh, discuss it and study it, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, help me in my my thoughts, Lord. Just help me to say the things that are uh, helpful and accurate, Lord. And I just pray, ask you to be with each person here that they would glean from the service exactly what they need for their lives, Lord, that it would encourage them, it would grow them, it would increase their faith and their uh, dependence on you, Lord. I pray that you be with those who aren't able to be with us uh, due to work and different things. Be with those who are still on their way out, Lord, that you watch over them as they come out. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these we pray in Jesus' name and amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 17. And what we were looking at last week, Paul had gotten, uh, I was going to say thrown out of Philippi, but he didn't actually get thrown out. Uh, he had been beaten and he had been jailed in Philippi, uh, contrary to the law. And so whenever they found out he was a Roman citizen, they were treating him much nicer after that. And so they asked him to leave, and so he left Philippi and went on his way, and he came to Thessalonica. And these are all places that are in Greece, so Paul is uh, just starting off uh, getting the gospel into, uh, into Europe, okay? And so he comes to uh, Thessalonica, and this is the, uh, the, the church that the, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians was written to. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of an idea if you've read through First and Second Thessalonians. But anyway, he went there, and it says, as his manner was. So he had a habit. He had a routine that he would go through. As he would come to a place, he would find the Jews first. The Bible says that uh, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. And that was Paul's manner. He would go to the Jews. Also, he had rapport with them. Uh, they had a connection, if you will, because of a common background. And he was able to go there and take the scriptures that they already understood partially, that they already uh, acknowledged, that they already respected. And he was able to take the scriptures and basically uh, draw a line to Jesus from the scriptures because all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And he was just kind of filling in that information that they didn't have. And so it says that he reasoned with them for three weeks out of the scriptures and he was showing them that the Messiah that they were looking for, it says opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. So they had built up a religion based upon their traditions and based on the things that they liked within Scripture. We said last week that they kind of took the Bible like a buffet. They picked and chose the things that they liked or the things that they understood and pushed everything else aside. And so Paul went through the scriptures and said, yes, you're looking for the Messiah. Our hope is in God sending this Messiah. It's promised all the way through scriptures, but you are looking for a conquering king. But before the crown, there has to be a cross. And so he brought through all the scriptures showing that Jesus suffered and died and resurrected from the grave. And the people there uh, couldn't accept it. The Jews couldn't accept it because it went against their sincerely held beliefs. Okay, they had built up this form of religion. They had built up this way of thinking, uh, and they had based their life and their identity on this. And whenever Paul introduced this new information to them, whenever he pulled the scriptures and showed them this truth, they said, "Okay, yes, it's in the Bible. Yes, I see it, but I'm not willing to accept it because that means I have to change, right?" And they were uncomfortable with that. And so after three weeks, they throw him out of the the synagogue. And he continues to uh, meet with those who will meet with him. He continues to talk and to disciple those who have believed. But as more and more people are leaving the synagogue, and as Paul is getting more popular, these people who have rejected the gospel gets more and more angry. They get more and more upset. And finally, they get to the place where they are ready to run him out of town. They hire uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort. They get the rabble of the community together and say, start a riot, blame it on Paul so we can get Paul killed. Right. Okay, that was their their plan. And so the, the riot comes about. They storm the house of Jason where Paul was staying and Paul was already hiding. In the short amount of time he's been there, he has made friends and family, 
right? Mm -hmm. And they ended up sending him away secretly by night. And Paul was no longer able to come back. But there was a church that was started. There were believers in that city. And God blessed that place greatly to where the churches grew. And you read in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And there are a there's a strong and faithful group of believers there. They are seeking the Lord. They are desiring to serve Him. And so that time that Paul spent there was very fruitful. But there was still struggles and there were still uh, difficulties that he faced there. Now, our main lesson that we get from his time at uh, the, the city of Thessalonica is a lesson in um, for us today dealing with religion, okay? There are still people who are very religious today. There are people that are extremely um, passionate about their beliefs. There are people that are convinced about their beliefs, but a lot of times they don't have any truth, any evidence, anything to back up those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so they are tying their identity to it. They are emotionally invested in it. And if you come to them and challenge those beliefs, they are going to react in anger. They're going to react in even sometimes violence, right? Mm -hmm. And so that gives us a little bit of instruction as we are dealing with people, uh, you know, just relating to people that we work around, that we live around, that, uh, that are family or friends and different things is we have to understand that some people have uh, these beliefs as part of their identity. They have these beliefs that they have emotionally invested in, that they have tied themselves to, but they can't defend their beliefs, okay? And whenever someone can't defend their beliefs, they become defensive, mm-hmm. right? And so we turn that around to ourselves because we believe some things. We tie our identity into things. We can become, or we should actually, I believe, be emotionally invested in what we believe, right? But we need to know why we believe what we do. We need to be able to defend what we believe. We need to know the reason for the hope that lies within us, right? Because whenever you can defend what you believe, whenever you have reasons for what you believe, good, solid, biblical reasons and can back it up and you know what you believe— then you don't have to become defensive, okay? So for us as Christians, when we know what we believe, why we believe it, and we are secure, and I think that's one of the differences here. These people were insecure in their belief. They didn't have anything to ground them to, to firm that up for them to know. And whenever Paul came preaching truth and showing them in Scripture, they're like, whoa, this is eating away the very foundations of what we believe, and they panicked, right? And so we need to know so that whenever people come to us with differing beliefs, whenever people come to us with differing religions, that we're not shaken, that we're not panicked, that it doesn't erode our foundation because our foundation is built on Christ, is built on truth, and we know what we believe. We know why we believe it. Okay? So if you can't defend it, whenever you're confronted, you will become defensive. Okay? But whenever you are resting securely in the truth of God's word, it doesn't matter what others say. It doesn't matter the arguments that they present. It doesn't matter these other things. You can rest securely and you can remain calm, Mm -hmm. right? You can converse with them. You can reason with them without losing your mind. Okay. This week, and I was so proud of her because you know she's been working every Tuesday at the charity shop, and there's a lady that comes in and works with her that's I think 33, mm-hmm. and she's Muslim, and she has been trying to talk Lydia into for two things: not allow your parents to have any say over what you do or want to do, and keeps telling her not to follow God but to follow her heart. And I was so proud of Lydia because she's like, Mom. I just took this Bible verse out and showed her that your heart is desperately wicked, you know, and all kinds of stuff, and stuff about my parents and all kinds of things. And she said, Mom, she couldn't say anything to me, you know. And she said, then I was talking to her about several other things, and I gave her Bible for it, and she was just like, let's change the subject. (laughs) And I was like, Lydia, I am so proud of her. I was just so proud of her because, honestly, I don't know personally that I could have done what she done, Mm -hmm. you know, and just, I was just really proud of her, but it shows in what you're talking about of how insecure people are and they just have what's been put in their mind. Mm -hmm. They don't have anything solid or concrete Mm -hmm. as a building base to go off of. So Mm -hmm. that's just a little personal this morning. Yeah. (laughs) 
another thing I want to point out from this, and I know this is still review, but uh, it's not necessarily a review. I'm going back and picking up on things I didn't do last week. It's like I, I study this week. I'm like, oh, I missed this, and I missed this. I want to throw this in. Uh, so I go back and, you know, redos, right? Do over. Yeah. You ought to do that as kids. You're, you're doing, oh, I want to do over. Yeah. But anyway, um, another thing that I found in this is that it says that he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this is something that's great about Christianity is that it is reasonable. Right. That you don't have to hang up your brain. You don't have to check out on your intellect. But instead, it is reasonable. You go, you search through the scriptures, and you reason out these things. And it makes sense if you're willing to open your mind to it. Okay? And so anyway, this is why it was so difficult for these people to accept. And so from Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And Berea is the one that I often refer to. They were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Paul was presenting them with truth, but they had a firm grounding on scripture. And they said, we believe the Bible. The Bible is the authority. So Paul, show it to us. And Paul said, gladly. And so he sat down with the Bible, and he says, okay, you believe in a Messiah? Yes, we believe in a Messiah. Well, this is what the Bible says about the Messiah. You believe this? Oh, yeah, we believe this. Well, it also says this. Mm -hmm. Oh, he didn't see that before. And so they were having Bible studies through the week. They were looking up their Bible, and Paul was having them flip the pages, you know. And uh, they were saying, yeah, the Bible does say that. And they were willing to say, okay, if the Bible says it, we believe it. It's settled, right? And they were willing to change whenever they were presented with truth from God's Word. And oftentimes we are guilty of this. We hold on to our traditions. We hold on to our preconceived notions to where even if we are presented with truth from the Bible, we are unwilling to change. We need to be like the Bereans and say, okay, if I can see it in Scripture. Now, we don't want to be uh, easily tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Because there are some people that's catching bits and pieces of everything coming and going, and one day they're over here, and the next day they're over here. But we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But we need to realize we don't know it all. So there's going to be times that people will bring up something, and you'll be saying, I never saw that before. But yeah, it's there, so okay, I've got to accept it. I've got to believe it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we saw that in the Bereans. And so today what we're going to be looking at, after all this introduction, right? is uh, Paul whenever he gets to Athens. And as he comes to Athens, a little bit of a background on Athens, uh, he has went now from, um, from Philippi being the northernmost part of Greece, uh, and now he's down in Athens. He's going to be in the kind of the southernmost point. And so he's covered Greece from tip to tip in this short amount of time here, this short, well, not a short amount of time, but these short passages. And so where he's going from Berea, where they, the troublemakers from Thessalonica came a, few day, a couple days' journey to Berea, stirred up trouble there, Paul left there, left his helpers behind to root and ground the people of Berea, and he went on his own to Athens before they killed him. And whenever he went to Athens, uh, this would have been many days' journey. This would have been probably some 150, 200 kilometers, Okay. And so you think about travel time. Yes, they were able to to travel quite a bit and all, but this would have probably been some 10 days journey, okay? And so he's going to come down to Athens, take him 10 days to get there. He's going to send those who escorted him to Athens. He's going to send them back, probably take another 10 days for them to get back. And they have word to send his uh, co-laborers onto him. So it very easily could have been uh, 25, 30 days that Paul was in Athens, or was out of Berea. So he could have been there for like 20 days with his travel time. Something like 20 days he was there looking around the city. So keep that in mind as we read this. And so Paul's just wandering around the city of Athens, taking it all in, and uh, let's read. Verse number 15, it says, And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, For to come to him with all speed, they departed. And while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some 
he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine whereof thou speakest? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So we'll stop there for right now. Paul's getting ready to preach the, the sermon on Mars Hill. We're familiar with that, I think. But anyway, uh, as he comes to Athens, he's spending this time, a couple weeks at least, uh, roaming around the city, taking it all in. And it says that his heart or his spirit, excuse me, was stirred in him whenever he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Okay, a little bit about Athens. It was a cultural center. Okay, it was part of the Roman Empire, but whenever Rome conquered Greece, they revered, I guess, or respected Athens so much for all of its contributions to art, to literature, to uh, philosophy, to uh, all of learning, all these different things, that they really, they didn't conquer Athens. They allowed Athens to remain independent as an ally with Rome. Okay, so Athens kept its culture, it kept its government, and it still existed as its own entity, if you will, within the Roman Empire. Okay, and so whenever Paul came here, he was surrounded by all things Greek, and he was raised up a, a Hellenist Jew. He was able to speak Greek. He was familiar with uh, the Greek history, the Greek way of life and everything, even being a Jew. And so as he wandered around, he is seeing temples to all sorts of different idols, all different kind of gods. Uh, to uh, If you study uh, Greek mythology, you got what Zeus and all those. Is that Greek or Roman? That's Greek, yeah. So you've got Zeus and all these different ones, and um, they had all these sorts of gods. One of the historians at the time wrote that in Athens, you were more likely to meet a god than a man. That was how totally given to idolatry it was. There were statues, there were idols carved and set up everywhere around town. And so it was a place of rank idolatry, total paganism, but it wasn't uh, barbarian in nature. They were extremely refined. They were extremely sophisticated. They believed themselves to be the, the top tier of humanity, that they were better than everyone else, that you had the Greeks and then you had the barbarians. Okay, that's how they elevated themselves, that they were all alike. They were all better than the people below them. And so the Greeks saw themselves as being at the top tier, everyone else below them. And so it was a cultural center, but it was also an academic center. Okay, It was the university town or the university city of the air. It was the, the home to philosophy. It was the home to mathematics. It was the home to all of these different courses of study that exist. And we have people like Plato and Aristotle and Pythagoras and Archimedes and Homer and all these came out of Athens and out of Greece. And so much of our mathematics today, much of our philosophy today came out of Greece. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Paul was dealing with. And the reason I'm bringing all of these things out is that we live in a culture and we live in a time that would have been much like Athens. Okay, where we live at, people believe that they are advanced. They believe that they have evolved to a higher plane. Many people will say that they have went past the place we no longer need God, that God is a principle that was something that was needed for the less developed people, but we have evolved past that. We are more developed today than what those people were then. And so there's the idea we are scholarly, we are well-learned, we understand all of these great things, we are so advanced and we no longer need God. Isn't that where we're at today? Yeah. And so it's presented, especially within universities and with academia today, as if uh, it is an advanced position, that it is the intelligent, is the smart thing for you to get rid of religion, for you to get rid of God, for you get, and to depend upon self, to basically elevate humanity to being a place of God, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul was dealing with here. And he was looking around, and it says that his spirit was stirred within him. He became upset. He became angry. 
as he was looking at this situation, he wasn't angry at the people. He was angry at their condition. Right. He was angry that the devil was getting uh, an advantage over them, that he was using their intellect and their advances and all these things to elevate their pride and push God aside, right? We can sign really within this the very same thing that uh, Satan began uh, long, long ago whenever he says, I will be as God. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm going to advance myself. I'm going to place myself up here to where I no longer need him. Is that not where we are as a society today? And so we're going to find several parallels as Paul is dealing with these people to much of what we're dealing with in society. Okay? One thing that I do want to bring out, just this idea of him being stirred, we come to verse number 17. He says, He disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace daily with those that met with him. We find that there was a population of Jews that were in Athens. That there was a synagogue that was there. But it seems as if the Jews that were in Athens were satisfied with meeting in their synagogue. They would have considered all of the idolatry around them and all of the Athenian way of life to be perverse and for it to be wicked and all these things. And so they would have retreated into their synagogue. They would have said, okay, uh, they're wicked. We're going to serve God. We're going to be here in our synagogue. And if any of them want to come in, that's okay. But we're going to keep our distance from them. Okay? They had gotten used to all the idolatry around them. They had gotten used to the wicked way of life, and they just kind of uh, hold themselves up in their synagogue. And Paul was burdened by this, and he went into the synagogue, and he began reasoning with them like he always did. And the reason I bring this out is I find that there is a risk for us as Christians to become complacent. There's a risk for us as we live in this day and time there's a risk for us to uh, get used to the dark. Yes, right. To see all this going on around us and say, they're not interested. They don't care. They are sinful and they are wicked and they want nothing to do with God. And so we will just hole up in our church and in our community and we will let them do their thing and we'll do our thing. We're available if you need us, but we're going to be over here. <laughs> and... I believe that we can't do that as Christians, that we have to leave this building and we have to uh, be amongst the Athenians. We have to be amongst the people in our community and where we're at, and we have to be able to show them Christ in the way that we live and in the things that we speak. And so as Paul was uh, eat up with this, as he was uh, moved to uh, action, if you will, and I'm not saying that everyone's going to be like Paul and preaching on the streets. Right. I'm not saying that he, everyone is cut out of that fabric, that they can go out and reason in the, the marketplace in the town square. But I do believe that we have to be moved by the condition of those who are around us. We have to be touched by those people that are around us and realize that every single one of those people have an eternal soul. They are someone who God made and who God loves, and he doesn't desire a single one of them to perish, but that all of them would come to repentance. Right. And so we need to be moved by that, and we need to be affected by that, and we have to check ourselves once in a while because we do grow complacent, and the fact that we are surrounded by people wholly given to idolatry ceases to affect us, and that is a problem for us, yes. right? Yeah. And I'm lumping myself in that, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a problem for us, and we have to be moved by this. We have to allow uh, the, the situation of those around us to make an impact and an effect on us rather than us becoming uh, apathetic toward it, okay? And so whenever we look at this, he's, he's reasoning with the Jews. He's meeting with them in the marketplace. And there's something interesting here about Athens that I don't believe that we have today, okay? And it is these people had a curiosity. It says here that uh, they spent their days and their time doing nothing else but wanting to hear something new. Right. Now, they might be a little cynical. They may be a little bit critical, but they were curious. They were interested. And so whenever Paul came to town, their first thing was they would go to him. And they'd say, okay, Paul, what's your story? What do you believe? What are you preaching? What's this message you've got? We want to hear something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) in a way, they were kind of pulling it out of him. And that would be great, right? Yeah. You know, you start walking down longer, and they're like, hey, I noticed you're new here. 
what's your story? <laughs> well, I, I'm a Baptist pastor down there. Well, okay, Baptist, what's that about? What, is it, what do you believe? Tell me about this. Hey, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. And in a way, I see that there, and that would, as I said, that would be great for people to have that curiosity. But what we find in the community that we're in is that people are not interested. They're not open, and they are satisfied with their ignorance. Okay, that might sound a little bit harsh, but what it is, okay, as an example, and I've told this before, I, I talked to one lady in particular, and it stuck in my mind, and I was sharing the gospel with her, and she says, I've believed what I've believed for 80-some years, and I'm not going to change it now. There's no curiosity, there's no openness, there's no, and it kind of relates back more to those in Thessalonica, right? So we see, okay, we're in centers of culture and learning and all these things, but we're also in the place where the beliefs are settled and they're satisfied and they're not open to anything else. Yeah. And they don't want to be challenged. And so there's kind of this tug of war going on in Longford in Ireland between Thessalonica, religion, right? Mm -hmm. And Athens, culture and learning, right? right? And unfortunately, they don't have that curiosity. Is that an excuse for us? No. no. But I do think it would be interesting to be in a place like Athens where they're coming up to you and they're saying, I want to know what you, what you believe. Mm -hmm. They might make fun of you for it, but they at least want to know. Right. And I guess that's just somewhat with me. I, I'm timid. I'm introverted and whatnot. And uh, I would be much more suited for them dragging it out of me than me having to, you know. But anyway... Um, so he's talking with them. He's conversing with them daily. They are curious. But all of this seems to be non-confrontational. Right? This is interesting. I don't believe that we as Christians are supposed to be confrontational in that we're not supposed to be abrasive. We're not supposed to be out there and offending people on purpose. And I think some within Christianity have taken it upon themselves to take that approach, to come and be as abrasive and as confrontational as they can be. And even Paul, as uh, outgoing and extroverted as he was, he did not do that. But instead, he came, he talked with them, he dialogued, he reasoned with them, and kept it much more natural and relational even whenever he was going through these things, right? right? Mm -hmm. He didn't come to Athens, and we're going to get to his message here on Mars Hill, and I think we, we uh, read it with a slight prejudice mm -hmm. when we read his message, and we see him up there uh, thrusting out his chest and saying, you bunch of pagan idolaters, let me tell you the truth. That is not the tenor of his message no. whatsoever, okay? But anyway, whenever he is talking with him, whenever he's telling him about this, Apparently, word gets out in the city because they're curious people. He's the talk of the town now. And because this is becoming such a common uh, conversation amongst the people, the leaders of the town want to hear about it and want to know more about this guy before there's any kind of trouble. And that's what we're going to see. And this is the background for his message on Mars Hill. Because we think of it as, okay, he goes out to a place, there's a lot of people around, he is filled with zeal, and he just begins preaching. But whenever he's on Mars Hill, this is a meeting place of government for him. He's being brought before the rulers and the elders of the city to give an account for himself. He is in a place of danger. And so basically, he is being brought before the equivalent of the Sanhedrin to give account of himself. And rather than him defending himself, he gives it an or he gives him this opportunity to preach the gospel. Okay? But let's look at the ones who are uh, dragging him to this, uh, to the uh, Oropagus or whatever it is. It says that there were certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics who encountered him. Whenever it says encountered, it doesn't just mean that they saw him, but instead that they had came and they had confronted him. And so we have two different philosophies here, Epicureans and Stoics. Anyone familiar with them? Know anything about them? Kev says a little bit. No, I have forgotten already. <laughs> You've forgotten it? Okay. Okay, so the Epicureans, their basic philosophy 
They said there either is no God or the gods that existed and made this world have lost interest in it and moved on anyway. If there is a God, they're not interested with what we're doing. There's no eternity. There's no afterlife. So essentially the meaning of life, the purpose of life is pleasure. Okay. And so they would pursue anything that was pleasurable, anything that was enjoyable, anything was fun. It was a hedonistic lifestyle, if you're familiar with that word. And so that was what the, um, the Epicureans taught. The highest meaning to life is pleasure. Okay? And the Stoics were the opposite. And the were the opposite. So for the Epicureans, it was vice. Okay? For the Stoics, it was virtue. And so the Stoics, on the other hand, and these were the polar opposites of each other, and they both came to Paul. So the, the Epicurean said, uh, go out, drink, sleep around, do whatever makes you happy. We can relate to that philosophy today because there are many people who still follow that philosophy. Yeah. They try to deny that there is a God. They try to deny there's a judgment. There's no afterlife. We have evolved. We have gotten here by a series of uh, events and accidents and so the whole meaning and purpose of life is live it up while you're here because you can't enjoy it when you're dead. Right? Many people have taken that philosophy. But the Stoics, on the other hand, they, uh, they, they praised virtue. It was all about discipline. Okay? They seen the earth as being God, as being an energy, basically Mother Earth. You can see where I'm going with this, Right? And so their purpose in life wasn't pleasure, it was peace. Okay? So rather than pleasure, it was peace. They were seeking to not have any kind of uh, conflict within their lives. And their ultimate goal, the ultimate virtue, according to the Stoics, was apathy. To get to the place where you don't care, to get to the place where you are unmoved, where you can live in harmony with the world which you live in. And so they denied that there was an afterlife, that there was a punishment, that there was inherent good or evil or any of these things, because that would disturb their peace. And so they were seeking peace and tranquility. The other guys were seeking pleasure. And you look in the world that we live in today, the same philosophy still exists. And so there are those who only care about themselves. It's all about them. It's all about their fun. It's all about their pleasure. Get the most out of this life. You only live once, right? That's a little bit dated now, a couple years old, but that was the, the big saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's all their thoughts, right? But there are others. It's like, oh, we've got to uh, do our part. We've got to be disciplined. We've got to control ourselves. We have to not be moved by all these other things. And instead, we need to seek after peace and tranquility. And we've got to protect Mother Earth. And we've got to meditate. And we've got to, right? And these are the two different groups that were coming to Paul. And they were offended by Paul. They were troubled by Paul because the gospel confronts both sides. Right. And he says, there is a God. He is, he has created us not for pleasure, not for our pleasure, but for his. Mm-hmm. Not for us to seek peace in this world, but to seek peace through him. That there is an afterlife, there is an eternity, there is a resurrection, and what we do on this earth does count. And they're like, well, we don't like this. This this rocks our boat a little bit. And so whenever this is coming up, they bring him to the center of uh, Athenian culture and government for him to say his part, for him to tell what he believes to these people who are going to determine whether or not it is acceptable in Athenian culture. And so these are the the gatekeepers, if you will, for a modern term. These are the ones who are going to decide whether they're going to accept or reject him. And really, Paul's life is in danger here. Because if he is seen as a troublemaker or as a heretic even, they could kill him right then. There were other philosophers that were brought to this very same place, and they were killed for their beliefs and for their views. Paul was at this place. Okay? 
And so as we come to verse number 21, I, I quoted it a time or two, but they spend all their time in nothing else but to either tell or to hear of some new thing. Okay? Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 7, I think is applicable to this. Let's say 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 7. It says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Professing themselves to become or to be wise, they are become fools. I think it says in Romans chapter 1. And so we find that this is what the Athenians were about. Something interesting here, though, to show a bit of hypocrisy for them. Whenever they countered him, their statement of kind of... Um, Mockery, they said, What will this babbler say? Yeah. Called him a babbler. The word behind babbler there, it means a seed picker. It's the idea of a bird going around and collecting a little bit here and 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 a little bit here. And they're saying basically Paul is just going around and picking through all these different beliefs and making some kind of a, a belief system or religion up. When in reality, they were the seed pickers. They went about to do nothing but to hear or to learn some new thing. They were impressed by novelty. Okay? And so we come down to verse number 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that ye are, that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not uh, far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone or, gra or graven by man's device, graven by, by art and man's device, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Eropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so this is one of Paul's lesser successful uh, evangelistic efforts, okay? And as he's here, excuse me, as he's here, he stood at first to give a defense of himself. And he told them, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. In our way of thinking, we think of superstition as being um, a, an offensive term. If you tell someone they are superstitious, it's meaning that they are believing in foolish and dumb things, right? Yeah. But what he is meaning whenever he says you are too superstitious, he says... I look around, I see all this, and you are very religious people. That's what he's telling them. They would have taken this as a compliment. He's looking around, he's like, hey, you got a God there, 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 you're, you know, you got this and that and the other going on. You all are very religious people. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you see how the, the tenor to the conversation is different than how we often read it. We read it as Paul gets up, or maybe it's just me, maybe I'm wrong, okay? But, we're prone to read it as Paul gets up, he points a finger at him, he says, you are just a bunch of super superstitious people. All these false gods, all these idols you have around here. You're too superstitious. 
But that's not what he's doing. He's, he's actually giving them a compliment. He's saying, you're very religious. As a matter of fact, I noticed as I was going around and beholding your devotions, your worship services, that there is an, uh, an altar that is dedicated to the unknown God. And he takes hold of this thought that they have, uh, they have confessed, they have admitted to something they don't know. And they're curious, right? And so Paul takes this as an opportunity because as the Athenians were making all of their false gods, what they had basically done within their religious system is they had taken all of the attributes of mankind, taken off human limitations of those attributes, and they had deified them. And so there was a God for every human characteristic. And there was a God that would allow for any pursuit that they wanted. And so if you wanted to uh, indulge in drunkenness, there was a God for that. If you wanted to indulge in sexual sin, you had Aphrodite, right? If you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to go and steal from your neighbor, you had Mercury. He was the God that was speedy and able to steal things, right? You had a God for everything that would validate your sinful desires and your sinful choices. And they continually made up gods just to validate their humanity. And their gods were just as flawed as what they were, just as wicked as what humanity is. And it really elevated the wickedness and the corruption of mankind whenever they saw their gods. Okay? But amongst all of the gods that they had, they still had a sense, I guess you could say. They said, we have a God for everything, but there's still something missing. Mm -hmm. Right? And it doesn't matter what society tries to come up with to bring fulfillment to themselves. It doesn't matter how much mankind tries to fill the void and the emptiness. Man always knows there's something missing because God created us for a relationship with him. He created us with an innate knowledge that he exists and that he has put in into his creation certain parameters, certain expectations for us. And they know that there is something missing. They know that they are missing the mark. They know that for some reason, all of the things that they are seeking after, the pleasure, the peace, whatever it is, they are still coming up short. And so the Greeks said, okay, we're going to erect this idol, this statue, to the unknown God, to try to satisfy this void, this thing that we don't understand, the thing that we don't know, the thing that we know that we are missing, we are going to worship the unknown God. And so Paul latches onto this and he says, you want to know God. You have a desire for him. You realize you're missing something and I have what you need. And he begins to preach to them Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me the precision that he has as he's preaching these things. How he is showing great wisdom as he's preaching. Okay? Because if you look at what he says in verse number 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So what is he doing there? Those who just came in, we're in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. What he is doing here is he is basically invalidating all of their idols, but he is doing it in an inoffensive manner. Right. That is tact, okay? So he says this God that you don't know, he's actually the God that created everything, that he has given life, he has made the world, the heavens, the earth, everything in it, and he has made you. And he cannot be contained in temples. He cannot be uh, imagined into a sculpture or into a, a bust or an idol or any of these things. He cannot be uh, limited to these things that you are limiting all of your false gods to. He doesn't just come out and say all of your gods are fake. He says the true God is bigger than all your false gods. The true God is the one that created all things. And he doesn't need anything from us, but we need everything from him. Because how do they worship their idols? 
their idols constantly needed things. Yeah. They would be uh, carrying their idols through town over festivals and parades, and they would have to carry their idols because their idols couldn't get anywhere. They were a piece of rock, or they were gold, or they were wood, right? Right. So they would carry them around. They would be offering up uh, these sacrifices to their idols because their idols stood in need of something. And they were trying to satisfy their idols. And he says, the God that created everything and created you does not need anything from you. He doesn't need your help. He isn't lacking anything. There is nothing that you can do to uh, to continue to keep him alive or to satisfy him or any of these things. And so very tactfully, he is denouncing their idolatry and lifting up the God that they don't know. Okay? And it says that... Um, Neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So this is a God that gives. The gods that they worshipped were gods that took. Right. Okay? Verse number 26, And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. So he created all mankind. There's not a God of the Greeks and of the Romans. And on top of that, we are all made of one blood. So the Greeks aren't advanced above the barbarians. There's not a tiered system that the Greeks are better than everyone else. He's saying we're all of one blood. Right. We all serve the same God. Right. We all are accountable to the same God. And all of your idolatry is basically fruitless. It's foolishness. But he says it without saying it. Mm -hmm. yeah. It says that he's determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. So he's the one that peopled the earth. He's the one that determined where everyone was going to live and where their limitations were. And then verse 27, that they should seek after the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not very far off or not very far from every one of us. He's saying here that God is not hid from mankind. He's not hid from his creation. His desire is for mankind to know him. Okay? Okay. It is only them seeking him is the only thing. He says that if we seek after him, we shall find him. We seek him with all our heart, right? Mm -hmm. He's not playing hide and seek. He's not a needle in a haystack somewhere. He's not saying, okay, search, and if you try hard enough, maybe I will uh, consider making myself known to you. He says he's not very far from us. We find, and I referenced this a minute ago, but in Romans chapter 1, I'll go ahead and turn over there. Verse number 19 of Romans 1 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest. Manifest means made known. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." God has put his fingerprints in all of creation. He has showed evidence all around that nowhere in this world are they void of evidence that God exists. They know he's there. Verse number 21, because that when they knew God, doesn't mean it doesn't say they couldn't know him. They knew him, right? Mankind knows there is a God. They know him. They glorified him not as God, neither be, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image made like unto corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so as Paul is standing here before these people, he's saying God has shown himself throughout creation. He's put all sorts of evidence that he is here. He wants you to know him and you are being satisfied by images of man and of birds and creeping things. You are lowering the glory of God down to things that you can relate to. You're dumbing down God. Okay? Is that not what people are still doing today? Yes. Trying to put God, squeeze him into uh, our human limitations. Trying to make him more relatable to us. Trying to dumb down his holiness. Phrases such as, well, God understands. 
He doesn't understand that he loved the world so much. He gave his only begotten son. He has made available forgiveness of sin, salvation of our souls. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He has enabled us to live holy lives for him and for us to continue to push him away, for us to continue resisting, for us to continue living in sin and doing things contrary to his will. He does not understand that. Okay? But we're trying to dumb God down. Now, Paul also goes and he uh, even brings in the testimony of their own poets. Notice he's not taking the, the Greeks back to the law. He's not taking them to the Old Testament. He's not taking them to the prophecies. They have no foundation there. He can't do like he did with the Jews and say, oh, you know the Bible. No, they don't know the Bible. But he said, you do know that sense of need. You understand that there is a God that you don't know. You understand that God has to be bigger than these statues and these idols you're making. Someone created all this and his, his fingerprints are on all of it. You understand there is a God. He wants you to know him. And even your own poets have said that we are his offspring. Doesn't mean that God has uh, procreated in some way and peopled the earth, but it means that we have issued forth from him, that in the beginning was God, right? right? And that God created us in his image. And so we're acknowledging, we're saying, okay, we know that God made us, that he created us, that he put us here. We are issued forth from him. And he says, even your poets testify of that. You didn't come by accident. You didn't climb out of a puddle of slime somewhere in millions of years ago. But there is a God that has created you. He has given you intelligence and intellect and morality and all of these things. And so we can't think if we are created in the image of God, we can't think that God is some idol of stone or of gold that he says at the end of verse number 29. Verse 30, it says, and the times of this ignorance. Now, a lot of people see the word ignorant and they are offended by that. I know my kids don't like to be called ignorant. Okay? But ignorant just means you don't know. There are many things that we are ignorant of. We don't. Our pride doesn't like that. But as he's talking to them, they start out with the unknown God, and so I'm telling you about who God is, and you have been ignorant of him, and there's been a time that God has winked at. He has overlooked your ignorance, but that time has ended because he has made himself known to this world. He has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So as he's preaching, as he's teaching these people, he's saying there is a God. He's created all things. We were created by him. We are dependent on him. He's not gold or silver or these things of our creation. And he is going to be the one who we are all accountable to. There is a key. Nobody wants accountability. Isn't that what a lot of these philosophies are about? A lot of these systems today, we're trying to get rid of God because if God doesn't exist, there's no one to hold me accountable and I can live however I want to, right? And he says he is a righteous judge. He is going to come and judge this world and he has proven himself by sending his son and raising from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is one of the key evidences, one of the key proofs that Jesus wasn't just some other philosopher or teacher or holy man or prophet, but that he really was the son of God and that he was able to lay his life down. He was able to take it up again. And so he says, this isn't some stone statue that you're giving drink offerings to and pouring, you know, but instead this is God came down to this earth, preached and taught and revealed himself and revealed God and gave his life for you, took it up again, proving that he has the right to judge the world of their sins. And so he's brought them to the place of accountability. He showed them Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And now they are brought to a place of decision. What are you going to do with this truth that was just given to you? And so their reaction to it, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, so what offends a lot of people, right? Whenever they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
we're too sophisticated for this. Uh, I guess that's what they would have called. Um, uh, let me look back at the word here. It's escaping me. This is what they would have called superstition, right? We're too advanced. We're too intelligent to believe that someone would rise from the dead. The things that's in this book don't make sense to me, right? That's what people say today. And so they mock it. They ridicule it. But it says, others said, we want to hear more about this. We're still open to it. We're still open to understanding this. And we are given, in verse number 34, uh, two names, Dionysus and Damaris, and others with them. It gives us the idea that there was very few amongst his people who believed. Okay? There's no evidence that there was ever a church established in Athens, that there was ever uh, a church that blossomed out of this. We don't have any evidence in history that this was a fruitful meeting, but there were people who believed. There were people who were saved. There were people who were confronted with the gospel. And who knows, who knows what happened from there? But our final, final thought before we wrap up here, we saw in Thessalonica, those who were committed to their religious ideologies, they refused to give them up. We're going to run into that kind of people today. Right? They're going to say, I believe what I believe, and I don't care how much evidence, how much proof, how much truth that you show me. I'm going to hold on to this. I can't defend it. I'm going to get defensive. Okay? You have the Bereans. They're going to say, okay, show me and I will believe. And then you're going to have those, like those at Athens, we are too intelligent, we're too advanced, we're too intellectual. We have our own philosophies, we have our own, and we don't have room for God. You'll run into all of these. And as Paul confronted all of these people, he reasoned with them, he shared the gospel with them, he had love and compassion for them. They didn't always have love and compassion for him. But he presented the gospel and he left it up to God and the Holy Spirit to do a work in those people's lives. Some were saved, many were not. And so for us today, we're going to run into all these different kinds of people. Our position as Christians, our job as Christians, live for Jesus, be an example, show the love of Christ, share the gospel, and allow God to do what God does in their lives. We don't have to get upset. We don't have to get defensive. We give them the truth. It's up to them what they do with it. So has anyone got any questions or any comments, anything today? You look like you do. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking. Um, I'm just trying, it's not a question, but rather than comment, based on the being open to listen to perhaps other other than uh, religious people mm-hmm. or not at all listening to. So it's like, uh, I will refer this to, to, to JW. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see them not knowing the scripture or mm-hmm. what the word of God saying. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing them like protecting their, their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Because like if you bring some other person to come and show you the truth when mm-hmm. they believe they have the truth already. Mm-hmm. So it will be like putting some question marks within what you believe in and and, and, and that goes to, to even cultural beliefs mm-hmm. that people believe from different parts of the world. As I believe in our cultures like mm-hmm. This is what our parents did, our grand-grand, so no one will come mm-hmm. and start telling us to do uh, some other things around. So to, to, to put them all together, like there's a, a good thing to be open to listen to something new, mm-hmm. but again, it, 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 it may take away what you, you, you built on already. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, I think mm-hmm. it's it, it up to one person to decide to what kind of, of, of conversation is open mm-hmm. to listen or right. what is this well, to give them. We need to be discerning of the voices that we listen to. Yeah. But going back to like the JWs, you could you could relate that easily to the Jews of the day. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because the Jews had the scriptures and they also had their experts, their theologians, their teachers 
that told them what the scriptures meant. And they weren't to deviate from that whatsoever, that they were just to take for granted the explanation that they have heard from their elders, from their uh, theologians, their experts, right? And so don't, just like whenever Jesus came, Jesus was a threat because he was teaching contrary to their body of doctrine that they had traditionally taught, okay? Mm -hmm. So you come to the JWs, they have the writings of uh, uh, Charles Taz Russell mm -hmm. and all of this. And so they said, okay, you've got the Bible, you've got the scriptures, but we have instructed you how to interpret and what to believe. Mm -hmm. And they go a step further. They say, don't listen to anyone else. Don't look at anything else. Only look at approved, even their websites and stuff. You go on there and, and these are approved resources and don't consult any other resources. Don't think, let us do the thinking for you. Okay, and so that's what they are teaching there, okay, because they can't defend it from Scripture unless you have somebody to teach you how to defend it from Scripture. It doesn't stand on its own, and so their authority is not the Scriptures, but is the, the Scriptures plus something. Okay. Okay, and that's why as uh, Bible-believing, why as Baptists we believe that the Bible is the lone authority and that it can stand on its own. Now, for someone who is uh, newly saved, a new believer, it's easy for them to get caught up in heresy and false teachers and things like that. But we need to study the Scripture. We need to trust the Holy Spirit. We need to realize that God's Word is reasonable. It's rational. It makes sense. Okay? And so for me as a pastor, I can't say, don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to any other... Uh, religions, denominations, or preachers, or anything like that. Like, I've got to make sure that you continue to believe what I believe. But I do say, believe the Bible. And if the Bible says it, believe it. And if I preach something or teach something that you can't find in this book, come and tell me. Right? Because this is the authority. This is our measuring stick. Not a religion, not a denomination, not a specific teacher. It's the Bible. Right? And so whenever people are afraid, whenever they are, uh, I guess the, the term that I used there a little while ago, whenever they get defensive about it, there's a problem somewhere. Right? So in, in other words, sorry to come in again. In other words, it's like most of doctrines, the, it, it builds on on specifics of what the, the people should believe on. Mm -hmm. And they try to take away not you to listen too much that is not building on those specifics. Mm -hmm. Like you will go to Catholics. Okay, there's someone who knows. If you, mm -hmm. you have any question, you have to go to them. They will tell you what is, what is good or wrong on that. And uh, maybe, was, yeah, maybe, <laughs> but that's the belief. Well, just, just talking from the reason I say maybe is I know I've talked with Mary in the past, yeah. and she said she's went to the priest with questions and looking for answers. He's like, No, I don't know, don't worry about that, don't worry about it, just just do this, okay, right, Mary? Yes, okay, okay, and so it's it's conformity that they're after, they're not after a relationship with God, they're not after people having a knowledge of scripture and knowing what they believe, they're after conformity. And that is a serious red flag. That is a serious issue is whenever they're after conformity, not after people knowing God and having a relationship with Him. And um, anyway. I was just thinking that the Jews that you mentioned that, uh, in Athens, they likely had much more... Uh, autonomy than we have nowadays. Mm -hmm. Because if they could just choose to ignore the world around, mm -hmm. we, uh, we, we cannot do that, I think, because mm -hmm. we constantly feel on ourselves the effects of the sins, of the sinfulness of the yeah. society. Yeah, there are those that would like remove themselves you know, go off grid or go to a monastery type thing and yeah. say, okay, we're going to have our own compound and we're going to try to... can't do that. Yeah. Okay. 
Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples that we have in Scripture. And Lord, it's amazing to me, Lord, at least, uh, how some things never change, that uh, the same things that Paul was dealing with back then we're still dealing with today. Uh, humanity is the same. And Lord, help us to uh, not become uh, not become apathetic toward it, not to, to lose our zeal, our desire to uh, to be a witness and to, to share the love of Christ with people. Lord, that we continue to be affected by uh, the sin, the wickedness that's around us, be grieved by it. And Lord, I just pray that you would use us to be a light and a witness in this place that you've put us. And Lord, we thank you for all that you do. And listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.